Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. The Telegraph. Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we discuss the latest updates from the war zone, looking at the advances made by Ukraine in Kherson, Zaporizhia, and Donetsk, and we speak to Dr. Sasha Dovzhik about nuclear threats, the sham referenda, and Ukrainian literary culture. We are facing a very serious crisis in energy caused by Putin's war in Ukraine. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Monday, the 3rd of October. Day 222. And today, I'm joined by Associate Editor Dominic Nichols, Assistant Comment Editor Francis Dernley, and our guest, Dr. Sasha Dovzhik, Associate Lecturer of Ukrainian at UCL's School of Slavonic and East European Studies and Special Projects Curator at the Ukrainian Institute. I started off by asking Dom for the latest updates from the war zone. Well, hi, David. Hi, everybody. It has been very busy in the last few days in Ukraine. Firstly, to the northeast on the, the sort of Kharkiv front. So that, after the big advance of a few weeks ago, that sort of slowed down along the line of the Oskil River, which runs, uh, runs north-south through that region, that region there. Russia had to fall back. It was basically, it wasn't really up to them how far back they fell. You, you, in, that, in that dash, that forward dash of a few weeks ago, Ukraine were just, were just racing, racing ahead. There was no sort of natural geographic boundary that Russia could fall back to. It was only when Ukraine felt that they, their forces were going to be overextended that they sort of paused and that, and that line sort of solidified-ish, solidified in, in mud, if you like, literally and figuratively, along the line of the Oskil River. The southern end of that is the town of Liman, which was a major uh, logistic hub that Russia was using to bring supplies down from, from Belgorod and from Russia, uh, Russian homeland, if you like, um, down into Ukraine and further on into the Donbass. So Liman became the focus of the Russian Russian defence, if you like, that and the towns of Kremina to the to the east. But Liman was a major a major hub that fell on uh, Friday. It was been we talked about it at length last last week. It was it's been under extreme pressure for weeks now. And it it fell to Ukraine, or rather was retaken by Ukraine, um, literally as as Putin was was on his ridiculous stage in Moscow, supposedly you know, signing the paperwork, and dotting the I's and all the rest of it for annexing the four regions after that ridiculous uh, the sham referendums last um, last couple of weeks. So I mean, 
somewhat poetic if you like if it, if it was um if if it was happening at exactly the same time but um i'll come back to it in a moment i think le mans and the effort that's happening now in Curzon to the south i'll come on to that in, in a moment are are the battles to really look at and examine m- m- almost more so than the kharkiv dash but i'll come on to that in a minute but le mans was retaken by Ukrainian troops, a classic sort of, they cut it off from the north, the supplies from the north and the and the east. There was one one road out to the northeast that, that through which Russia could try and escape or be resupplied. It was very much more the, the former than the latter. Um, covered by Ukrainian fire, uh, artillery and missile, missile fire, increasingly watched by drones. So we don't have a figure for personnel or, or equipment that was lost there, but it seems as if it was a I mean, Russia just lost the chance. They should have they should have pulled out a lot longer ago. Certainly, days, if not weeks, ago. There's reports that actually that was directed personally by Putin that they were not to retreat, and they've they've lost the town and um, seemingly hundreds, if not thousands, of troops and uh, and their equipment as a result. They're now falling back to the east, increasingly harried by Ukrainian forces as as they do so. And I made the point at the start of this this update that, that the front line there is not entirely calcified. It is it is sticky, um, because the U- Ukrainian advance is still continuing. There are not, I say, not obvious geographic um, features that that Russia can can mount a credible, coherent defence on at the moment. So it is, uh, I mean, crumbling is far too far too strong a word. It's, it doesn't seem to be crumbling, but it is very, very porous and that the front line around there is um, is, is absolutely not fixed. Uh, in the centre, in the centre of the Donbass, Russia is still smashing its head against uh, the town of Bakhmut. Uh, quite wide, not entirely sure. It is a, a sizable town, but actually that's that's not where the battle is in the Donbass right now. So quite why they're still pushing there. And it seems to be mostly Wagner- the private military uh, mercenary group there in Bakhmut um, comes back to the issue we've, we've spoken about in the past. That this is not one coherent Russian force. You've got the Russian army, what's left of it, the new conscripts, the Wagner group. You've got the self-styled um, Luhansk and Donetsk People Republic militia. And none of them are kind of working together. They don't know how to work together. They don't have a, a cultural sort of history of working together and working on joint operations. So quite why we should expect them to to get their um, operations in one sock, so to speak, is is a bit fanciful, I I guess. Um, So they're not able to mount a credible attack there, and seemingly it's just the Wagner group that are smashing away at Bankmoot. It's a little gain. Down in the south on the Curzon front, just in the last 24 hours, now this has been very interesting. Over the last number of weeks, we've seen Ukraine shape the battlefield down there, and by shaping we mean spend a long time trying to destroy uh, ammunition dumps, headquarters, artillery positions, long-range long precision missile positions, as well as dropping the bridges across the Dnipro River and sealing off, we think, about 5,000 Russian troops on the northern side, the north and the western side of the Dnipro, the right bank of the Dnipro. Uh, we talk about rivers and the way they are flowing, so the right bank will be the, the some more inland bank of the, of the river. A huge number of Russian soldiers... Uh, trapped there uh, with only sort of very meager pontoon bridges across the river to 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 resupply them so that that front has been fairly static for a few weeks there was a, a suggestion that that was the feint to draw in russian reserves and the the very long range precise artillery and missile systems from the donbass down to the south um that happened those 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 troops and the, that equipment were moved to the south 
whether or not it was a feint because that, that then was followed up by the by the Kharkiv advance. I don't think it was a feint, actually. I think they were two, two coherent and coordinated um, operations. But now in Kurzon, this this steady advance, what Russia's been trying in the centre, albeit grinding away, very attritional, very heavy in terms of in terms of their own manpower. Um, Ukraine have been taking that kind of sto- that measured approach, not gaining a huge amount of ground, but also not committing a huge amount of resource and not losing huge amount of people and equipment in the process. So they've they've been sort of protecting their combat power. Uh, but just in the last day, on the around the, the the banks of the river, so the um, as they as they are moving south, if you can picture it from Ukraine's point of view, moving south to so their left flank, the Russian right flank near Zaporizhia, that kind of area, they seem to have advanced. Um, I mean, there are reports of twenty or thirty kilometres. Now, whether or not this is an advance there, or some kind of raid, or possibly an air assault operation, we don't know. But it looks as if Ukrainian troops have broken through on that area on Ukraine's left flank there, um, possibly down as far as the as the river. Whatever is happening there, it is very dynamic, so we, we, can't, we can't give you an exact idea of what's going on. But um, it seems as if this... Um, we likened it to some sort of massive Jenga game earlier on where, where Ukraine was sort of probing, looking for the weak spots and then reinforcing those areas where they were gaining some ground and having, having um, tactical success. That now seems to be happening... As I say, this area down the river on, on Ukraine's left flank, they do seem to be getting a, having a measure of success there um, and, um, and, and are pushing on. So very fluid in the, uh, across the, the, the whole country, across the, the battle space. Um, happy to come back later and say why I think those, those operations around Liman and what we're seeing in Kherson, what we think we're seeing in Kherson, are arguably the more important battles and, and the more important uh, operational design to look at rather than the, the the sort of Mad Max Kharkiv race through race through the lines. Um, if there's time, we can we can talk about that. But in terms of uh, battlefield movements, that's uh, that's it for now. Well, thank you very much for that, Dom. Uh, Dom and Francis, you weren't here on Friday, so I just wanted to ask quickly for your reaction to uh, Putin's speech that he made in, in Moscow on Friday. And Dom, I mean, you put it almost in poetic terms um, at the beginning of your update just then. So I just wanted to ask before we move on, Dom and Francis, what are, what are your thoughts on, on what he said? Well, I'm happy to, to come in on that first. I mean, there's been some interesting events since then, r- which relate to the speech. So I'll cover those first. So We've, we've heard that Russia has now said that it has funds to support four Ukrainian regions, which Putin began annexing last week, said that those are going to come out of the country's budget. We don't exactly know how much uh, those are, and neither do we know the exact nature of the borders yet. The Kremlin have said that they will consult with the residents who are living in two of the regions, that's Kherson and Zaporizhia, on how those borders will be defined. But you mentioned the speech and... Indeed, I think the speech is interesting for looking at how exactly Putin is justifying this, as well as there being some further thoughts that I just wanted to, to, to sort of point out from it. So if one looked at the speech last week, one of the things that he said, and I'm pulling a direct quote out here, is, of course, it is their right, their inalienable right, which is enshrined in the first article of the UN Charter, which directly speaks of the principle of equal rights and the self-determination of peoples. So there, of course, he's talking to these uh, these sham referenda. 
He says, I repeat, this is an inalienable right of the people based on historical unity in the name of which the generations of ancestors won, those who from the origins of ancient Russia for centuries created and defended Russia. And so it goes on. So I just want to point this out, first of all, because it's a classic strategy of Putin's. He appeals to the language and the philosophy of the West whilst actually doing the exact opposite. So he talks about the first article of the UN Charter and the right for self-determination, but then goes into these, this sort of historical perspective, alluding back to the 18th century and, and, and everything else that I've just quoted from there, um, as if this is uh, in, in, in some way its own form of justification, uh, this, this, this sort of thousand-year history, um, which, as I say, are actually inseparable in his mind. But as far as the way the UN thinks about these things are totally separate matters, just because Russia says that they are historically combined countries doesn't mean that it makes them the case that they are. But the, indeed, that seems to be Putin's argument. So there's that side of things. And then I was struck by several other points about the speech. So he talked about as well, and I'm quoting again here, at the same time, the West has been looking all this time and continues to look for a new chance to hit us weaken and destroy Russia, which they have always dreamed of, split our state, pit peoples against each other, doom them to poverty and extinction. They are simply haunted by the fact there is such a great, huge country in the world with its territory, natural wealth, resources, with a people who do not know how and will never live according to someone else's orders. So again, he's staking the claim here of being this sort of civilizational force. And indeed, the way in which he's speaking here is as if this is a, a super power nation, as if he's trying to rebuild Russia in the mentality of, of, of how it saw itself in the Soviet era. But it's worth, as I say, as I've made this point several times on the podcast in the past, this is a country that has the, an economy the size of Spain. And that's no insult to our Spanish listeners. I happen to like Spain very much. But this idea that they are a civil, civilizational um, power with the kind of resources that the West has is simply delusional. And yet that is exactly how he is framing Russia here as this civilizational force with a historical destiny. Again, on this historical point, I was very uh, interested by his remarks where he says, let me remind you that the United States, together with the British, turned Dresden, Hamburg, Cologne and many other German cities into ruins without any military necessity during World War II. This was done defiantly without any, I repeat, military necessity. There was only one goal, just as in the case of the nuclear bombings in Japan, to intimidate both our country and the whole world. So again, using history as a weapon here, trying to appeal to this idea that the military operations during the Second World War, used by the Allies, by the United States and the British, were unjustified and were simply an attempt to, in a sense, as he, as he puts it, intimidate both their country, our country and the whole world. Well, just on a historical point on that, uh, that this is highly disputable that the um, attacks on Dresden, Hamburg and Cologne were, were simply um, uh, atrocities, which is how he's trying to obviously depict this here. I'd point him to um, Albert Speer, who was actually the armaments minister towards the end of the Second World War for the Nazi state, who pointed very much about the significance of these attacks and what they meant for diminishing the Nazi capability to respond in terms of armaments production. I'd also point him to Richard Overy, who's a very distinguished military historian here in Britain, who said that uh, the, the bombing raids on these cities were
were hugely significant in the eventual defeat of Nazi Germany. And just the last point of the speech I wanted to pick out is he spoke at the end about the world being divided into how America views them, of, of, of vassals, so-called civilised countries and the rest, false labels, rogue country, authoritarian regime used to stigmatise entire peoples and states. They, this being the West, discriminate, divide peoples into the first and other grades. So, again, he's trying to pitch here this idea that the West is somehow a colonialist power and that Russia is the buttress against this. And I just wanted to conclude by saying that I think this is a very, very deliberate pitch to the rest of the world at this moment when Russia does not have any real allies to speak of. It's clearly trying to use the language of those countries like in Latin America, Cuba, Nicaragua, Venezuela, um, that uh, use this narrative of, of a colonialist West and, uh, and he is seeking to try and bring them in to the Russian fold. And it's worth pointing out that Latin America and the Caribbean have signed up to China's Belt and Road Initiative and similar ones being conducted by Russia in Africa. We've seen the launch of Biden's Build Back Better, which is an attempt to try and do something similar, not only domestically, but also build back the better world. This attempt to try and do a similar program to be spreading democracy around the world. And, you know, this is an obvious attempt to try and put stake a claim to Russia being the voice of, of an anti-colonialist world that doesn't want to be part of the West. Will it work? I think it remains to be seen and will be very much reliant on China's support. But nonetheless, I thought there were some interesting things that should be picked out and analysed a little bit more deeply uh, from the speech. These, this inaccurate historical comparisons, this civilizational approach to how it, Russia is pitching itself in this battle of ideas around the world, and also seeing itself as the, as the foremost anti colonialist, anti-Western power and appealing to the rest of the world to assist it in this great generational battle. It's worrying. Thank you very much, Francis. Uh, Dom, very, very quickly, your reaction to the speech and then we'll move to Sasha. Um, I would just note that the Institute for the Study of War, the US-based think tank who, who are um, who've been watching the war very closely and uh, making some very considered and sensible analysis of it they they um they reported over the weekend that actually at, at the speech at the great the great thing in um in moscow uh putin had invited a number of the military bloggers that we've spoken about before these these hard right ultra nationalist bloggers who are very very critical openly critical of the kremlin and the, the way they've they've um, they've conducted the war um he's he's uh, a number of them were invited to the to the ceremony now this is probably Putin's well, two, twofold way of getting his arms around them to say that we're all, we're all in this together, fellas. Um, but also, I'm sure, just sort of feel the collar and say, right, lads, don't don't feel, don't think that you're uh, that you, you can have it all your own way. So it'd be interesting to see what they're going to come out with in the next few days. Now, the most prominent of them, uh, Eagle Gherkin, former FSB, uh, he has already he's been uh, he hasn't stopped his his steady stream of criticism about the way that the war is being conducted. He's focused on the the retreat from Liman. Uh, so he's still 
he's still out there and and speaking. But uh, whether or not the others will uh, on Telegram, we will uh, we will continue to uh, to watch and report. But it was just interesting that they that they were also uh, personally invited uh, the military bloggers and and a lot of journalists to the uh, to the annexation his so-called annexation speech, literally as Liman was falling. Well, thank you, Francis, and thank you, Dom, for your analysis and your updates there. Um, Sasha, it's wonderful to have you with us. Thank you so much for um, sparing some time to come on. Would you just introduce yourself to our listeners, tell us a little bit about what you're doing, and um, then we can see where the conversation goes. Uh, Wonderful. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's a great pleasure to be here. Uh, My name is Sasha Dovzhek. I'm a special projects curator at the Ukrainian Institute in London, and I'm also a lecturer in Ukrainian at the School of Slavonic and East European Studies at the UCL in London as well. However, I've spent the last eight months uh, mostly in Ukraine, occasionally traveling back to London. So I had a chance to witness the incredible resistance of the Ukrainian people to this invasion uh, myself and to participate in whatever way I could in this resistance by volunteering and uh, reporting and helping journalists like yourselves to report on the ground. Um, I'm, I'm very great, grateful to Francis for unpicking Putin's speech here because, uh, you know, my mental health is obviously not sturdy and robust enough to listen to his utterances. Uh, but from uh, what I hear from other people and what I read, um, uh, it looks like his speech was a classic case of uh, psychological projection because obviously it is Russia that tries to intimidate the whole world um, including by the means of nuclear blackmail and this is probably uh, the subject I would like to uh, dwell on. Um, I come from Zaporizhia Uh, it's the city in the southeast of Ukraine which you have uh, learned about by now because the region of Zaporizhia contains the largest nuclear plant in Europe. Uh, It is in the town near Zaporizhia in Enerhodar, uh, which is currently occupied by Russians. And as you uh, have discussed on this podcast, it is under constant shellings from Russia. And the latest development on the ground uh, is that the director of the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant, Ihar Murashov, was abducted by the Russian occupiers. This obviously uh, is a huge threat to nuclear state, to the safety of the nuclear power plant, uh, because Ihor Murashov is the top manager of a complex and uh, uh, very, um, you know, it's a huge nuclear power plant. 7,000 people are uh, reporting to uh, their director, and this director is now taken out of the game, um, basically uh, abducted, blindfolded, and taken into the unknown direction uh, by the Russian military. Uh, and uh, this is this does not make the situation at the nuclear power plant any safer for any one of us, because you know the safety of the staff who are conducting all these complex operations at the plant uh, is one of the safety pillars on which the entire security uh, of the civil nuclear infrastructure is based. So uh, Russia, being the power that has for the first time in history brought war to the site of civilian nuclear infrastructure is responsible for this. Uh, 
anything can go wrong at any moment. And the fact that we are not uh, hearing about the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant in the news during the past week or two does not mean that the situation there is under control. So we should all keep our eyes on that. Thanks, Sasha. May I ask, what are the conversations like amongst Ukrainians at the moment in regards to the nuclear threats? Uh, What's the messaging from the government like? Uh, are, Are people sort of stocking up on supplies how is it how is it seen how is it understood in ukrainian society uh of course so uh in zaporizhia uh, my aunt and my cousin have already received the iodide pills uh the ones that will protect them in case of a nuclear accident so those were distributed uh distributed centrally by the local government and in kiev you may have heard that people are preparing for russians uh using and nukes on them. Uh, so it's uh, another component of uh, Russian nuclear terrorism. They are uh, threatening with the, nu- with the use of tactical nuclear weapons on um, the centers of decision-making, such as Kiev, or on our front lines in the east and south. So people in Kiev have reacted perhaps traditionally for Ukrainians with humor, which is obviously gallows humor. Um, They are currently planning an orgy on one of Kiev's mountains to, you know, uh, meet the nuclear threat in style. But uh, jokes aside, uh, my friends are buying gun gloves and raincoats just to shield themselves from uh, radioactive dust just in case this happens and they are seriously preparing to survive a nuclear strike in their city. Um, I think this shows yet again that uh, Ukrainians are not cowed by these threats, but they are prepared to withstand whatever comes. Can I ask about the the sham referendums that have taken place across the four regions in Ukraine? Um, what are you hearing from, from your friends and family on the ground? Um, it's an interesting case and I think that these sham referenda are actually a media operation that are uh, that, that is aimed basically at us. Ukrainians on the ground know that uh, these uh, referendums do not change anything because we know that our friends and relatives were made to vote at gunpoint and these votes have absolutely no legitimacy. Um, people in Russia, I think, are not too excited by the annexation of Berdansk or Melitopol because for them it's not as glamorous as Crimea. And this operation is uh, first and foremost uh, conducted for us to see how we in the West react uh, to another annexation by the Kremlin. Uh, In 2014, our reaction emboldened Russia to proceed and to increase its military aggression against Ukraine. How do we react today? Is this the red line, the purple line, the pink line? Um, I think this question is basically for us. Thanks, Sasha. Um at the beginning of this recording, uh, we, we obviously asked Dom for the latest updates from the battlefront, and he sort of gave us 10 minutes of what seems like pretty good news for the Ukrainian armed forces, pushing Russian forces back in the east and Zaporizhia and, and in the south. Um, what, what's the feeling on the ground amongst Ukrainians? How do, do people, presumably this has had a huge impact on, on morale. Would you give us a sense of how people in the country and, and the diaspora um, are speaking about this? 
Well, basically, people are enthusiastic. Um, and I think that there was an avalanche of good news for Ukrainians uh, in terms of our progression on the front. And with each day, we believe more strongly that we will take back all our territories and that we will also release all of our people from captivity. Uh, this is probably not the breaking news, but you know that the uh, Azov-style uh, defenders were released a couple of weeks ago. And this is still celebrated throughout Ukraine. And I think that it shows how much each person's life is valued in the country because it still brings tears to our eyes to look at the um, released um, defenders of Ukraine and to hear them speak and to ensure that they are in free, uh, that they are free now. One of the things Francis picked up on from Vladimir Putin's speech was this casting, this attempted casting of Russia as essentially an anti-colonialist power. Um, I just wanted to ask you about, if, if you're comfortable talking about it, your own experiences growing up in Ukraine and going from the sort of growing up almost in the Soviet shadow and then that slowly being thrown off through the 90s and 2000s. What 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 do Ukrainians Ukrainians think of when they, when they hear that Russia is attempting to to cast itself as as that as an anti-colonial power? Uh, thank you for this question. Uh, I grew up in Zaporizhia, as I've mentioned, and this is a predominantly Russian-speaking region. It was forcibly Russified. Uh, I come from a Russian-speaking family, and I switched to Ukrainian after 2013-2014, after the Euromaidan revolution or the revolution of dignity, when it became clear for me that uh, my uh, loyalty is to the Ukrainian state and that uh, the language, the culture of Ukraine that have been suppressed uh, for centuries uh, and throughout my growing up uh, are weapons that I can yield in this war against the colonizer state. And it is obviously quite ridiculous today to hear that uh, colonizing power to cast itself as uh, somehow a vehicle of an anti-colonial struggle. we in Ukraine uh, know that our language and culture and literature uh, and our people's very right to exist have been uh, under threat from Russian colonial rule for centuries. And I think that this war has uh, made it clear to everyone in the world that this is the case. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, uh, Sasha, for that. Dom and Francis, you've been listening. Uh, Francis, I know you've got a couple of questions on on culture. Um, Would you like to come in? Thanks, David. Hi, Sasha. Um, Thanks so much for for appearing today. Um, I just had a question relating to a piece of yours that I I read, uh, which is about the significance of Ukrainian culture and the spirit of resistance that we've seen since the invasion. Just wondered if you could talk a little bit about the role of Ukrainian poetry and culture more broadly and how Russia is seen in that context? Uh, Of course. Thank you for this question. Uh, It was very um, touching, moving to witness how Ukrainian poetry uh, has been, has become this another uh, vehicle of resistance in Ukraine. We started seeing words by century-old Ukrainian poets like Taras Shevchenko and Lesya Ukrainka uh, printed on A4 paper and uh, stick to the doors of bomb shelters because suddenly 
all those uh, lines uh, started speaking directly to us, uh, those poets have been speaking against Russian colonialism, against suppression of Ukrainian resistance, and uh, emboldening uh, people in their right uh, for their own culture or own language, own literature for decades. Like the most famous line by the Ukrainian poet Taras Shevchenko is fight and you will prevail. Countless times I have seen this on the chevrons uh, of Ukrainian defenders uh, who are now at the front lines. Uh, This has become one of the slogans of uh, Ukrainian resistance today. And culture that uh, has first timidly come back to life after uh, Russian invaders have been uh, expelled from the cave region is now thriving there. I just uh, keep coming back in my memories to the day of the Ukrainian air forces, uh, the 7th of August, which I spent in the St. Sophia Cathedral in Kiev. Um, it was the day when uh, there was a festival of Ukrainian culture taking place in this 11th century cathedral. Um, and we were listening to U- Ukrainian classical choir standing under the uh, 11th century mosaics, which reminded us about the richness of our culture, about its longevity, despite all the attacks against it. And it was quite empowering thinking that today our army is defending us against this invasion. And so is this century-old Ukrainian tradition, uh, which despite all the attempts to eradicate it, is thriving today. Dom, would you like to come in? Yes, please, if I may. Thank you. Um, Sasha, hi. Great. Thanks so much for, for talking to us. On the cultural front, can you just please give us a your view on, on the um, Russian-speaking versus Russian-supporting idea? We, I, I've probably been guilty of it myself. In fact, I know I have, uh, of talking about describing some areas as uh, mainly Russian-speaking, as if that then directly equates to some other sort of cultural support or cultural leaning. And, and you know, I've... I've educated myself on that but just can you talk us through how how so so many people in ukraine are russian speaking sort of they might use it at home but that doesn't mean that they are russian supporting and quite where the where the balance is and how it's shifted over time um of course a uh, language does not mean political loyalty in ukraine uh, we are mostly bilingual so we switch between languages easily and uh, between ukrainian and russian especially in the um eastern ukraine um, and I think that it is quite clear that there has not been such a successful uh, Ukrainianization campaign in this region as the recent full-scale invasion, because uh, all of my uh, relatives, neighbors, friends who are Russian speakers and who remain in Zaporizhia and who are currently hiding from shellings daily because Russia has intensified its attacks and its bombings of the place, uh, have become incredibly furious and angry and uh, there is no power in the world that they can that can convince them to leave alone join russia in whatever mad fantasy but just to speak to russia and to listen to russians and what they have to say um russians coming uh with military aggression into the ukrainian land has been a huge um a breaking point to the Russian soft power in Ukraine. I think it will never come back. Russia will never be able to exercise 
its influence on uh, Ukrainian people again. Uh, basically, it's the last days of the empire and Ukrainian people will be the ones to deliver the last blow. It's such an easy trap to fall into. Uh, and as I say, I'm, I'm guilty of it myself. And is, is it a trap or is it just, just sort of lazy thinking and a, and a an ignorance of culture, I suppose, is a bit, a bit of bit of all of that. But no, it's, not, it's something that we need to self police. And with these these ridiculous referendums, you know, last last week, you know, I've, I, as I've become more more aware of it, I see it more and more in the you know in the press. And easy shorthands like, oh well, you know, they're you know Russian speaking, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So no, it's thank you for um, for helping us on that. Um, on on language, my, one more question, if, if I may. So, so Putin's speech the other day, it was it was very coming up, it was, you know, very heavy on the old red meat. It was a, it was a kind of warped version of history. It's a bit of a history lesson. Um, I mean, did, did, does Russian society and and does Ukrainian society respond to this? Are, 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 are people listening to this kind of stuff and and are sort of receptive to this kind of history lesson, or, or is it just all a bit? all a bit dull and he was kind of speaking to his own to his own audience um i can't speak for the russian population luckily i uh, don't have any contacts with those uh in ukraine we have stopped paying attention to uh these uh, this lunatics uh, utterances quite a while ago um i think the last time uh we tried to listen to uh, putin's utterances attentively was on the 24th of february when he declared the war on ukraine um but since then we've uh experienced the full-scale invasion we've uh, seen that we could withstand it and we've become more interested in uh, you know our own vision of history than uh, Putin's madman projections so no uh, his vision of Ukrainian or Russian history does not have any impact on how Ukrainians perceive themselves it is uh, quite clear for to everyone that uh, these are just, you know, madman utterances. Um, and in general, I think the less airspace uh, we dedicate to deciphering uh, Putin's and uh, Russians' uh, soul-searching, uh, the better. Because, you know, the conversations about the regions about the region have been dominated by the neo-imperialist narratives produced by Russia for a very long time. And this is one of the reasons why we underestimated Ukrainian ability to resist. Um, the less attention we pay to uh, Russian fantasies, uh, the fantasies about Russian resistance, the fantasies about Russian opposition to the Kremlin's regime, the better for all of us. Let's focus on what Ukrainians are doing right now, that is winning in this war, uh, rather than thinking about what Russians might do. <laughs> they might, might overthrow their regime. Uh, I bet they will not. If I could just jump in there, Sasha, I was very struck by what you were saying a moment ago about this reappraisal of history following the invasion. I just wonder if you can give some examples of perhaps past history in relation to Ukraine that you're now, as a consequence of what happened in February, rethinking about. 
Uh, I'm currently thinking about the 1991 referendum when Ukrainian people marched en masse to vote th themselves out of the Soviet Union. This happened on the 1st of December 1991, and the Soviet Union collapsed in one week. So it's fair to say that it was Ukraine, it was the Ukrainian people that delivered uh, that last blow to the Soviet Union. And, you know, thinking about that, we now understand that there is um, uh, some succession to this tradition that we will also perhaps be the people who will deliver the last blow to the Russian colonial project these days. Thank you. And one, one final one from me. You spoke also about this renaissance in Ukrainian literature following the invasion, particularly in the context of poetry. If you were to be thinking ahead, uh, wh what do you think that literature will look like in, in the months and years ahead, um, particularly perhaps for the benefit of an international audience? And also perhaps you could summarise some of the central themes of Ukrainian literature. I don't think um, many many of us were, were intimately familiar with, with Ukrainian literature prior to the war. And perhaps you could summarise some of its sort of key key themes for us. Uh, thank you for this question. Well, I think that the key theme of Ukrainian literature is what we call in Ukrainian volia, uh, freedom. It's the fight for freedom. It's the fight for liberation. Um, and it's not only the, uh, you know, sturdy male poets like uh, Taras Shevchenko, who is obviously a fascinating case, but there are more fascinating ca cases for me. For example, uh, Lesio Ukrainka, who was the feminist poet of the Fantasiakla era, so the turn of the 19th, 20th century, who was um, an anti-colonial thinker, a feminist thinker, who fought against all forms of uh, oppression. And uh, one of her plays, Cassandra, is basically something uh, many Ukrainians can identify with today. Uh, Ukrainian Cassandras is, has become some sort of syndrome, <laughs> a self-description. Uh, Ukrainians who have been warning the world about Russian aggression, about Russian imperialism for a very long time, were not believed, were not listened to. Today can witness the result of that uh, epistemological distrust. Um, this play will be on London stage the next week, and I invite everyone to partake in this renaissance, renaissance of Ukrainian culture. We now have this in a new translation by Nina Mari. And I think this is symptomatic of the larger interest in Ukrainian literature, in Ukrainian culture, and that is uh, currently burgeoning uh, outside of Ukraine. Finally, we can see new translations of classical Ukrainian poets, as well as modern Ukrainian poets, emerging worldwide. Uh, I can recommend uh, the poet Katerina Kalitko. She's one of those Ukrainian Cassandras who has been um, writing about war and genocide long before the current full-scale invasion. And she is a very strong poetical voice. Um, as well as Serhii Zhedan, 
you probably have heard about his novel, The Orphanage, which describes uh, the Eastern Ukrainian uh, war-ravaged territories. And this novel, it was, uh, I think, published in 2017. It reminds us that this war has been going on for quite a long time. Uh, the invasion did not start in February. Uh, we've been in this since 2014. So basically, the future of Ukrainian poetry, of Ukrainian literature, of Ukrainian culture, for better or for worse, will be uh, linked to the processing of the current massacres. But I think there will be many lessons to learn from this culture, from this writing. Sasha, may I may I ask, is there anything we haven't spoken about that you'd, you'd like to bring to the attention of, of, of our listeners? Um, I think that you've been covering very uh, thoroughly uh, Russian nuclear threats, but there is still uh, this threat of using tactical nuclear weapons against uh, Ukrainian uh, civilian population as, as well as against the uh, army on the front lines that I think we should be uh, discussing again and again because it is unclear to me uh, what will our response be like if Russia crosses this red or pink or purple line yet again, uh, what consequences, apart from grave, uh, there will be? What will Russia face as our response? I think this response has to be articulated more clearly. Um, and it has to be stated to Russia and to the Russian population so that uh, this line is not crossed. Dom, I don't know if you want to just jump in and add something to that. Yeah, well, we, we spoke last week about what a response might be like. This was after Jake Sullivan, the US National Security Advisor, said that there would be, quote, catastrophic consequences, unquote, of any Russian use of uh, nuclear weapons. And I mean, there is there is no more detail on that. I, I, I hasten to, to add straight away. We don't know what these catastrophic, cons catastrophic consequences might be. But the two ways of thinking about it are to, to think whether or not it's linked to the to the geography of of, of Ukraine, i.e., does something happen against Russia in Ukraine or in the in the immediate areas of it? So, if a missile was fired, let's say from either from the Black Sea or from Crimea or from um, or from uh, Belgrade in, in Russia, would would the West then take action? against that unit that 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 launcher so so linked very much to the geography of the war and the other way to think about it is conceptually so does the response come in in a military um in a military response either nuclear or conventional or would it be something completely outside the realm of of the of the military arena so to say say to russia we can we'll strike back in in a way of our choosing anytime any place um it doesn't have to be military it could be it could be uh, economic or any other any other means um of course there are inherent dangers with both that if you just stick to the conventional or sorry stick to the military and stick to the the geographic regional of ukraine and the environs that, that you are that it might the message might al almost be oh well, this is just a, a natural sort of development of the war and of course it's not there's nothing natural about it at all but equally if you try and do something outside geography and the and the and the sort of the military sphere you risk escalating and a whole number of, of unintended consequences and of, of previously uninterested or uninvolved actors and countries would, would uh, could get involved so 
it's called a horizontal and vertical escalation. Vertical being sort of more of the same, only bigger, and horizontal being something you haven't uh, used before. So these these two areas of of escalation and and response um, will, will be war gamed, I'm sure, right now across the various the various um, uh, parliaments and and uh, military structures looking at uh, looking at Russia. Um, but it is it is a very very tricky tricky response and a very a very difficult thing to get right because it hasn't been done before well thank you dom for that and thank you sasha for all of your time today um can i we're starting to run out of our out of time together i'm afraid so can i just ask each of you just for your your final thoughts what will you be thinking of uh, over the next few days looking ahead to this week uh, and what would you want our listeners to to think of dom and francis why don't you go first and leave uh, sasha for the final for the final words Sure. Well, I think uh, for me, I'm going to keep an eye on the, the Russian military blogosphere because they they have been very, very critical of Russia's conduct in this war so far, as in not their moral conduct, but critical of their, their, their what they've actually achieved in terms of ground. Um, I don't think the sham party rock concert, whatever the hell it was last week, is going to is going to shut them up for very long. Um, I'm wondering how long they're using this argument that um, well, look what look what Ukraine are doing when they've been given loads of NATO weapons. I mean, they're not saying <laughs> just just imagine what could happen if NATO then pile in with these NATO weapons. I mean, they're they're trying to excuse Russian battlefield failure, um, and there's only so many excuses you can come up with after a while. So I think I think this the the Russian military blogosphere is going to be re-energized after the after Ukraine have retaken Liman and whatever is happening right now in Kherson. They are not going to shut up for very long, even though they were invited to the party. And they seem to be the only flank really that is causing Putin some pain right now. So so keep an eye on the on the blogosphere. Just very quickly, Dom, I, th- I thought what you just said there was quite interesting because it's an interesting example of not quite accepting that the reason that the Russian forces are losing is because of the Ukrainian army. I mean, obviously equipped with with NATO weapons, um, but it's they're, they're they're the men and women firing the things and executing the combined arms maneuvers, and, and that that inability to see that is, is is quite revealing. Oh yeah, it's completely revealing. I mean, this is racism one hundred and one, right? They, they refuse to accept that actually it's the Ukrainian men and women who are fighting. I mean, let's not the the defense of Kiev in the in the opening hours and days of of this phase of the war. I mean, there were there, there weren't a wash with NATO weapons then, um, but of course Russia, the, Putin's not going to come out, and these people are not going to come out and say, "Oh, it's the stout defence and the and the the very very uh, intellectually um, uh, competent operational design that the, that the Ukrainian military have come up with, married to the the politics, married to the social media." I mean, they they just simply can't do that because then they've got. They, yeah, they've got nowhere else to go. So, of course, this is all down to NATO. It's all the NATO weapons, and you know not, they're not going to acknowledge in the slightest the uh, the Ukrainian men and women who are who are you know, firing these things. Um, but I mean, it, it's a little bit it's a little bit of both, of course. But we should should not take away the fact that what what they are saying, what they are talking about, even if they're not vocalising it, is that they're they're army is going backwards i mean they're talking about um uh, one of the one of the russian state tv channels i can't remember which one but i was looking at it over the weekend they were saying they were saying how um how liman had been a bloodbath for ukraine and that their uh, russia's forces had repositioned uh, uh, withdrawn i think they used the word i don't think they said retreat but withdrawn to other positions to continue the bloodbath i mean it's it's just it is literally ridiculous this is worthy of ridicule it is it is ridiculous but they and they, are, and they are running out of excuses and so is putin running out of excuses thank you dom francis Turnley. 
Thank you. Well, actually, I want to do something a little bit different with my final thought, if that's all right. And that is point readers and listeners uh, to uh, a piece that we had in the paper over the weekend, which is really, really fascinating. I've spoken at length about some of these long reads uh, in the Washington Post that have certain revelations in them that I think reframe how we need to think about certain central problems. And indeed, I think this piece does that. It's a piece by a Russian investigative journalist called Farida Rustamova. And she has been speaking to 15 civil servants, parliamentary deputies and executives at public and private companies in Russia, many of them senior managers, trying to register the general mood in Russia amongst the elite at present. And indeed, as I've talked about in the past, this is one of the many unknown quantities that really is absolutely critical to understanding what happens next. And Amongst the the revelations that are in this piece, the first is, is that there appears to be very little sincere support for the war in the Russian establishment now. Those who are the sort of educated doers in society, not those who are just sort of wedded to the regime and the ideology, but these are the people who actually have to follow the orders and saying that many of them revert to this defence mechanism of talking about the Second World War and this sort of war against NATO. But in fact, uh, this is, as I say, a a defence mechanism rather than it being actually a sincere belief. A quote here is that everybody's mood is similar to that expressed by the defence chief of staff at that Security Council before the war. We've obviously spoken about that meeting at length and its significance, and it would appear that many people and government officials are uh, are sharing that view if this um, investigation is to be believed. Nonetheless, however, whilst they are not supportive of the direction of travel with the war, there also seems to be a, a lack of recognition or ability to contemplate what happens if they are defeated. I mean, it seems to be this is something that is is unconscionable and there is no answer to that. And I think that should be a, a concern. But the other big revelation and the one that I think is perhaps most significant is this belief amongst the Russian elite that Putin is becoming increasingly rash and secretive and micromanaging in the face of the military defeats. He doesn't explain anything to anyone is one of the what is a quote from one of the sources. There's a total lack of coordination. It's a mess. Putin tells everybody different things. What's what are we doing in Kharkiv? No one has a clue. Neither the politicians or the mili- politicians nor the military. It's just happened. Now, if this is true and Putin is just sort of micromanaging, keeping everything from everybody, I think it gives an answer to one of the central questions that that I posed many months ago now uh, when the war began, which is, is Putin more of of a Stalin figure or is he more of a Hitler? Stalin was somebody who operated more in terms of uh, rationalism. He operated in the realm of sort of realpolitik and he was willing to, certainly in the after the catastrophe of 1941, was willing to concede power to those who knew better, you know, his generals like Zhukov, etc. Um, Hitler never was. Hitler delived, continued to live in this sort of delusional world of his own creation and in fact got even deeper into it. Um, now, of course, if he is more of a Hitler, I think that makes his defeat inevitable. One cannot micromanage one's way out of a war that is going sour. But it also makes him more dangerous because for the reasons that are obvious, Hitler as a idea, a, a sort of an idealist, an idea, a man committed to an ideology... Um, ultimately would, I think, had he had access to nuclear weapons at the end of the war, have been willing to use them, um, even if it had meant destruction of the Reich. 
um, uh, it, we more or less have that documented, that that was the mentality that he had. And if, if Putin really just share that, then I think there is, as I say, a considerable cause of concern there. Now, of course, it's a very different question as to whether he is capable of using those weapons. I'm not saying that he is capable of using those weapons for all of the caveats that I've thrown in in the past. But this question about his intention and what kind of operator is he, I think we're now getting to closer to an answer. And it's one that I think is, is a concerning one. Well, thank you very much, Dom Nichols and Francis Stanley. Sasha, uh, would you like the final words, please? Uh, thank you. Well, uh, over the next weeks, I will probably be watching uh, the world leaders' response to President Zelensky's extraordinary um, application t- for Ukraine to join NATO. Uh, I think it was a very worthy uh, response to the uh, blah, blah, blah of Vladimir Putin uh, um, in retaliation of the uh, so-called annexation of the Ukrainian uh, temporarily occupied territories. Zelensky um, filed an application to join NATO. Um, it's uh, a bold move, and I don't expect it to be met with similar bold- boldness from the NATO mem- members, but uh, we'll see. We'll see. And I'll be watching how the world responds to the challenge of the latest Russian war crimes and to the challenge of the latest Ukrainian success on the military front, because obviously uh, Ukraine has showed that uh, it can achieve victories uh, on the battlefield if given, if given the means necessary. Uh, so what means is the world ready to provide Ukraine with? Um, I'm looking forward to hearing the answer to this question. Thanks, Sasha. Just one more very quick question from me. For, for those people listening who want to start reading a bit more Ukrainian literature or poetry, is there a poet or a playwright or a writer that you'd, you'd recommend uh, to everybody? Well, I think it's good to start uh, reading up on Ukraine from the history of Ukraine. And there is an extraordinary book, The Gates of Europe by Serhii Plohi, who is also a Zaporizhia native, and I highly recommend it. And there is a series of uh, lectures by the Yale professor Timothy Snyder that is currently ongoing, and I can't recommend enough uh, watching those. In terms of literature, it's uh, Lesa Ukrainka, whom I have already mentioned. Uh, But also there are some uh, extraordinary Ukrainian uh, writers and poets who are currently in London. For example, Katerina Babkina, who is a contemporary Ukrainian prose and poetry writer, um, I would recommend just familiarizing yourselves with her work. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first 30 days completely free at telegraph.co.uk slash audio. And sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine The Latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing podcasts at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. We are especially interested to hear where you are listening from around the world. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Louisa Wells and Giles Gear, And today on Twitter, Claire Hubble. Hold up. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.